Have you ever had to try to describe something and you couldn't quite get there? You know, it's like the other person really didn't have a frame of reference and you're trying to describe it, but you know that what you're saying and what they're hearing, they're not really lining up. Well, now think about the challenge of describing the eternal kingdom of God in a way that would make sense to a finite mind with no frame of reference to really get to where you need to be. That's what Jesus was doing through these parables. When he says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's telling us, I want you to think about it in this way. I can't really give you a full description that you're going to understand because, well, the scripture has said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has stored for those who love love him. And so how do you describe the indescribable? It's not an easy challenge. And yet Jesus was up to the challenge because what we find is he gives us these parables in which he grabs on to kind of a central thought that he says, I want you to apply this to your understanding of the kingdom. Now, we we all start with kind of a baseline of the kingdom of God is, of course, there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no death. Everything is perfect all the time. It sounds like that would be enough, right? And yet, our understanding of perfect and everything as it should be honestly doesn't go high enough. We, we don't think highly enough of the things of God, and not that we're not fond of it, but literally it's hard to get our minds to go up to that level because we all understand things based on our own experiences. We understand things based on our frame of reference, the information we have available. And so one of the things Jesus had to do was to activate the imagination of his believers, he, he had to get them to think outside of just their lives and just their box and start to kind of think that what if kind of mentality a little bit with the kingdom of heaven. And he does it this time by talking about hidden treasure and a pearl of exceedingly great value. And these are two parables that really, I just, I love these. These are kind of my favorite in the parables just because of the possibility that he's kind of opening up with it. And so let's, let's look together in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, these seem like simple, straightforward stories, and yet anytime Jesus attaches the kingdom of heaven is like to any story, we know we, we're, we're in for a ride. We're in for something that goes a little deeper than just the story would seem. We're, we're in for a, a real treat for what God has for us. And in this one, he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, when I say the word treasure, how many of you think of pirates? I just, it's a thing. You know why? Because our cultural frame of reference is we think of buried treasure and we go immediately to Jack Sparrow. Right? I mean, it's just what we do. 
Now, that was not their frame of reference, okay? So when he talks about treasure hidden in a field, he is not talking about pirates and hidden treasure. Uh, what he is talking about is in Jesus' day, remember, they didn't really have banks. They didn't have secure ways to store their valuables. And this was in a time when invading armies were a real thing. Like, you may wake up one day and, hey, suddenly we're under attack and there's an invading army coming through. And what was it that invading armies liked to do? They wanted to take all your stuff. That's what they did. That's why they invaded. And so one of the things that people would do is they would bury all of their goods and just leave it there until it was needed. Well, what happened if that person was killed in battle when that war happened? And he didn't tell anybody about his treasure. It's just there. It's just there waiting to be found. And so if a person came along and they start, you know, they notice something and they start digging for some reason, and they're like, oh, look what I found. There really was a law in Roman society at that time that it was somewhat finders keepers unless somebody could say they were working on somebody else's behalf. And so if a landowner had a servant who found it, he could say, oh, no, that's my treasure. I bought that land. It's mine. And he was just working on my behalf, so he gets none of it. And so what we have in this parable is he says that this person found it. What did he do? Buried it again, and in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Why? So it would legally be his, so that he could take full ownership of the treasure that he found. Now, before we get into more of that, though, I do want to ask one question. What do I treasure? I want you to ask that of yourself. What do I treasure? Because Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when I say the word treasure, what do you treasure? What does your heart leap at the thought of attaining? Because in this parable, there's something really interesting that happens is it says that in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. Which means the treasure he's found has an inherent qualitative difference. It is better than everything he has. Everything he has. And he's willing to part with everything he has in order to obtain it. Now, what in your life is worth that? Now, that's a hard question, isn't it? What would motivate you to that extent? That not, look, he's not under compulsion. He doesn't have to do this. What does it say? It says, in his joy. He just goes and does it. Like, he is glad that this is happening. You see, this qualitative difference is that there's a current reality for this man, and there is now a new reality. There is a new way of life. There is some change that is now happening that he says is absolutely worth divesting himself of everything from his former life. And he does it with a smile. He's happy to do it. Now remember, this whole parable started with the kingdom of heaven is like. You see, what Jesus is getting into now is <clears throat> what is it that we value? Remember, we just finished a sermon series called 
kingdom values? What is it that we value to the point that we would be able to look and recognize the worth of the kingdom and see that it is, it is so great that everything else pales in comparison to it? Do we see that in the things of God? Or do we see the things of God as an obligation? As something that we have to do, not something that we get to do? And what we treasure will reveal that. What we treasure, we will put ourselves into wholeheartedly, right? And I mean, we will really put ourselves into things. You know, you, you take a, a master musician, and, and you musicians in here, how many hours of practice does it take to master an instrument? On, on average, it's been studied. How many hours of practice is it? Anybody know? 10,000 hours of practice. So anytime you see some musician that's just killing it on stage and, you know, they're playing like two instruments at once and they're doing all this stuff and, and they make it look so easy that everybody else is like, I want to do that. And then they grab their guitar and they're like, uh, how does this work? And, you know, the other person's up there just making everything, this music is just happening and everything. Well, what you typically don't see is the 10,000 hours of practice that that person has put in outside the spotlight. Why? Because they valued it. It's something that drove them, that they were willing to invest themselves in. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just a reality. And when we genuinely treasure something, we will invest ourselves in it. And I mean, we will invest ourselves wholeheartedly. Now, the real question then is, in this world, what happens when we treasure the wrong things? What happens when we start investing ourselves, and I mean genuine investment of the heart, in things that are not worth that kind of investment? What happens? You see, in Matthew six twenty-two through 24, Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, what he's getting into right there is the idea of what is it that we treasure. Our eye, what we invest our eyes, what we look at. Now, this isn't just a a passive like, oh, I saw this. What he's saying is what you invest your attention on. Where you direct your gaze in life is going to either have a return of life or death. And when we invest ourselves in things that are not of the kingdom, and we genuinely invest ourselves in it, you know what we get back out of it? Nothing. Because it doesn't have the ability to bring life. Only God and the things of God have the ability to truly bring life. Now, don't don't be mistaken when I say that, that it it means you've got to spend all your time at church and you're only doing Bible study in life. Look, there are a lot of things of God 
that, that are worth investing in that bring, I mean, a smile to God's face, if you will, that are not, you know, church in that sense. Parents investing in their kids and loving them and, and, and in raising them up so that they know that they're loved and that they're valued and that they know the love of God. Guess what? God values that. That's something that he loves. That's what is a good thing to, for us to invest ourselves in. You know, the, the, the second greatest commandment, greatest commandment part two, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. So anything you do in that, in that vein, anything you do in that process of loving your neighbor as yourself, as obedience to God, it brings life. It brings life to me. It brings life to the others. It brings life. It is what a treasure should do if it is a genuine treasure of God. And so what he's telling us is that there are things of God in this world that are worth letting go of lesser treasures. Because we can't hold on to both of them at the same time. And he says, you're going to have to make a choice in this. And so what we have to do is, is learn to, to look at our lives and think, what only do I value, but what I value, does it bring genuine value back from an eternal perspective? Is this pleasing God? Because you can have it all in this world. And I mean that, you can have it all and still have nothing according to God. And in fact, that's exactly where the Apostle Paul was in his life before he was a Christian. He was known as Saul, and he was the best of the best that there was in his time according to his culture and his cultural standards. And in fact, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, 4 through 9. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, his resume would impress anybody in Jewish culture. And I mean that. People were looking at Saul saying, I want his resume. This guy has it together. He has everything. He's figured it out. Man, he's intelligent. He's influential. He loves God. He's zealous for the things of God. I mean, his resume was perfect. Except for what? He missed all of the eternal truth of that stuff while he was in it. Until God blinded him. The Lord Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus. And... He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul says, who are you, Lord? I've always wondered about that. Who are you, Lord? He knew. He knew deep down what was going on because we can't deny the truth. And it says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he gives his life to Jesus Christ. He puts his faith in Jesus. He's saved, and everything changes for him. And so what does he say? In verse 7, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. 
You see, his value system completely changed, and in a moment, he figured out what really mattered. And he said, you know what? I was investing myself in things. I had a treasure that wasn't really a treasure. I found out it wasn't a treasure. And so you know what I did? I let go of it. I stopped pursuing it. I stopped living my life by those rules, and I started following Jesus Christ. And now he knows who he is. And now he chases things of eternal value. And Paul is able to say these things because he can simply see the truth. His eyes were opened to the truth. And that's it. Just the truth of what's important and what isn't. And he found out the things of God that really matter were love of Jesus, love of God, absolute righteousness, faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. He figured out what really mattered. And if we are going to make that same choice in our lives today, where we divest ourselves of of worthless things and invest ourselves in the things of eternal value, we too must choose. And choices require clarity. We have to know what we're choosing. We have to know why we're choosing it. We have to see clearly what matters and what doesn't. we got to understand that the enemy is going to lie to us. We have to know the truth so that we can identify the lies, so we can stop believing lies and start investing ourselves in truth. And we have to make this choice when we can make this choice. Because you know this is a choice that can't just be made willy-nilly at any point in the day all the time. It requires a movement of the Spirit of God in our lives to genuinely make this choice. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. On the last day. Now think about the the ramifications of that. No one can come to me, Jesus is speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. If the Father is drawing us, then we can go, but don't assume that that drawing is going to continue throughout all of life every day, all the time. We resist the Father enough in Him drawing us to eternal things, and He'll stop drawing us. And we will get what the Bible talks about as a calloused and seared heart. Our consciences become seared and our hearts become callous and we stop hearing the things of God and we start living strictly for the world. And so when we are faced with a choice in this life between what I think is a treasure and what actually is a treasure, it's up to God. And when He opens our eyes and calls us to move, we have to make that choice in the moment or we may lose that choice forever. And I know that sounds harsh, but when Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, that should put a sense of urgency in our hearts. That this isn't about us and our ability to choose. If this is all about my ability to choose, I'm going to choose wrong. Okay, you, you, can, you can look back at, at Scripture all the way through. Go back to the Garden of Eden before sin ever entered the world, before there was any suffering, no death. There was one lie that was told, and what did man do? Chose wrong. And if we would choose wrong in that situation, I guarantee in today's world, we're going to get it wrong every single time. 
We have to depend on God to even get the choice right. But that doesn't mean God lets us off the hook and doesn't make us choose. We still have to choose. We just have to be willing to listen to Him and allow His Word to define it for us, to define truth, to define what's of value, all of that. And so it says the idea is that we have to take action while the opportunity to take that action exists. I know people that were very close to receiving the love of Christ and putting their faith in Him, and you could feel that the Spirit was moving and that they were convicted, and you know what they decided to do? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And in time, the drawing stopped, and they went back to their life, and the things of God no longer mattered to them. And I wonder how different would their life be had they given in that moment, made the choice to accept what the Father was doing, what the Spirit of God was doing. But even us as Christians are not immune to making the wrong choice. We can still choose against the things of God even when we are saved. And if we continue to do that, if we continue to, to be rebellious against God, then we too can get a hardened heart where we stop listening to the things of God. And, and so we have to make a choice, and many times that choice is going to be far more intense than we thought or that we want it to be. Listen again. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... Here it is. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This wasn't like a decision that was just kind of, well, I'll get to it when I get to it. Or, okay, well, you know, I can handle, you know, maybe one day a week I'll go to church. And, you know, be, what is the decision he's talking about right here? He says he goes and sells everything that he has. That's a huge decision. It's saying that the decisions that God is going to ask of us when we are faced with kingdom decisions in this life are not going to ever be inconsequential, but are going to require us to choose between what we think reality is and what reality is. We're going to have to choose between what the world values and what God values. And it's not ever going to be a simple choice that, that has no you know, minor ramifications on our lives. It's always going to be something big. Every time God calls us and asks us to make a choice, it's always going to be significant. There are no small decisions when God is concerned. It may appear small, as we talked about last week, and start out as a mustard seed. We think it's small. We think it's inconsequential. But we realize later what it turned into. Here, he's saying, sometimes you just have to make a decision. Understanding the nature of how big it actually is. You see, this was quick, decisive action on the part of these two men in this parable. I mean, selling everything you have is pretty decisive, right? It's not like you can get you know, halfway through and it's like, you know what, maybe not. Now that you're homeless and you, know, you don't have a bed or whatever. <laughs> it's quick, decisive action. They didn't try to make the decision fit within their current scheme of life. 
In fact, their decision required that they change their life completely, that they value different things, that they look at life differently, that they let go of a former life that they had. It wasn't something that could fit within their current worldview. They had to change everything. And this is what kingdom decisions do for us. You see, these two found the treasure and immediately set their lives on a course to obtain the treasure because they knew that the life that was waiting for them on the other side of their action was far greater than their current situation. And so, how do we make decisions like this? Well, one, it requires a sense of urgency. And I mean that, a sense of urgency to obey God. We cannot delay obedience to God. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Now, God allows grace and He does forgive us. And even in delayed obedience, if we come back later and like, okay, God, I'm sorry, I know you want me to do this and now I'm going to do it. God will always allow us to do that. But even then, there are consequences for that. The best obedience is immediate. Parents, am I right? Have you ever had to have the talk with yourself about how you obey God like your kids obey you? You know, it's like, how many times I got to tell you? And God's like, yeah, let's talk about that. How many times do I have to tell you? And it's like, God, this isn't about me right now. He goes, oh, but it is. Oh, but it is. You see, we, we have to have a sense of urgency in, obe- in obeying the things of God. And we can't obey half-hearted. When God tells us to do something, he, he goes big, doesn't He? Anybody ever hear said like, oh yeah, God got involved in my life and made a couple little changes. After that, it was you know pretty smooth. He doesn't do that. He, he makes huge changes when He does. When God moves, He doesn't ask just little things. And when He tells us things to do in Scripture, they're big, like make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's no small thing. And He commanded all of us to do that. That's a responsibility we all have. Do you feel a sense of urgency to obey that? To fulfill it in your life? Or does something lesser that we value keep us from obeying? You see, in order to really do the things that God wants us to do, it will always require a choice in which we're going to have to let go of something from the world. Every time. Two, we have to have a clear understanding of what has to be done. We have to have a sense of urgency and we've got to know what to do. Right? Now, these two in, this, in these stories... They knew exactly what had to happen. They looked, they saw the treasure, they, they saw, you know, they knew the price of the field, and in their mind they're like, okay, if I go sell everything I have, I can make this happen. They knew what had to happen, and they didn't delay, they did it. Now, what has to happen in your life to do exactly what God is telling you to do? Sometimes we don't like the answer to that, do we? Because it requires like, whoa, I'm going to have to really, some things got to change. I'm going to have to be much more disciplined in God's word. I'm going to, I'm going to have to actually change the way I think and what I do. And my life's going to look very different if, if I'm going to have a sense of urgency in obeying what God, God tells me to do. And then third, we got to have no fear. We got to have no fear. 
Fear and obedience to God don't go together. And I don't know about you, but if I had in mind that I had to go sell everything I had, I might have some fear on like, man, what if this doesn't work out? What if in the process of me selling everything, somebody else buys the land and I miss out on the treasure? And yet you see neither of them doing that. They have a sense of urgency that I've got to do this right now. They know exactly what has to be done, and they do it fearlessly. They're all in. And so we have to develop this idea in our own mind that when God calls, we have to answer. And we've got to answer now. We can't wait. We can't put it off. We've got to do what He tells us immediately. And we've got to do it fearlessly the, the Bible calls it boldness. We have to be bold in, in obeying. Because, listen, over and over, the Bible kind of gets into this idea of don't put it off. Okay, if God speaks, don't put off listening to it. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. And Paul says, behold, now is the favorable, favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul's saying, hey, God says, I'm, you know, when, it, when things are good, I'm listening to you. And he says, that's right now. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, today is the day of salvation. And if God is drawing your heart, you better listen. Don't put it off. Follow in obedience. And then he warns us in Hebrews 3.15, as it, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, that's an Old Testament story where they started to rebel against God and a whole lot of people died that day because they, they refused to do what God said because there are consequences for when we disobey God. Now, I'm not saying God's going to kill you, but there are consequences. For those people in that time in the Old Testament, it did mean death. And you know what? It could today, too. I'm not saying it is. But it could be. And that's the sense of urgency we got to have. Is like, I don't want to mess with God. I don't want to make him mad. He's God. He could strike me dead right now. And you know what? He'd be perfectly justified in doing so. Like, he wouldn't have to explain himself to one angel in heaven. Not one angel would be like, God, that's a little harsh, don't you think? You know what the angels do when he does something like that? Praise God. You're holy. You are holy. And so, our entire lives... The time we have right now is given as a gift so that we can hear and obey God. That's what our lives are about. It is so we can hear and obey God now. Because if you think about it, all we have is right now. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because you're not there yet. And don't you know, worry about yesterday. It's over. All we can live in is the present. That's all we have. And so... Are you obeying God in your life right now? That's a great question to ask all the time. Am I obeying God right now? Am I listening to Him? Am I doing what I'm supposed to? And, in, and instead of living in fear of, well, what's God going to do if I don't or anything like that, there's one more aspect to this parable, these parables that I absolutely love. And that is that we focus on what is gained. We focus on where it's going. Because there's something amazing that happens here is that they, they see the treasure, he covers it up, and then it says what? It says, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. In his joy. Like, this guy's excited. 
He is so excited to be able to, he's like, I got it, life's going to work. And, and stuff before that he might have been like valued, like, oh, no, 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 this, I got to keep this. He's like, hey, $10. 10 bucks right here. You want it? It's yours. No, 10, 9, 8, 7, sold, good. One item down. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have a plan in place to sell everything I have. I don't have that. It, this would take some time. This is something that, as he realizes what has to happen, there is a process that has to take place for both of these people as they go and sell everything they have. And so there would be many opportunities for them to stop and like get scared and start thinking, do I really want to do this? This is risky. This is hard. Like I'm, 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 you know, I, I pull this out in the memories of when I got it and every, I, do I really want to divest myself of that? But he, he does it and he does it with joy. You know why? Because he knows what's coming. The joy of the treasure that was found and the life it's going to create for him, he knows is so great that it completely dwarfs anything that he valued in his life before. He's looking at it now saying, this is completely worth everything I'm about to do. In fact, it's not only worth it, I'm excited I get to do it. Because I know what's coming. Now, let's pull this into the real world. Your life right now. The treasure, of course, is the kingdom of heaven. It is heaven. It is knowing God. It is walking with God. Okay? And, and the, the moment, the decision of I'm going to go sell everything I have is the moment of salvation. That is the moment that those people are set free from their old life. The decision has been made. I accept this new treasure into my life. Even though it's not yet a full reality, I'm going to live like it is. And so, now I will begin the process of separating myself from that old life. That is repentance and that is discipleship. What is discipleship other than learning a new way to live and letting go of an old way of living? That's what discipleship is. It's learning and walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And when we take a step that's not in step with Him, He says, hey, get rid of that. And we have to decide, is it worth it? Now, what does it tell us in the parable? In His joy, He goes and sells everything He has. You see, when we're following Christ and we're really walking with Him, it should be a joy for us to repent from sin because of the life that is waiting for us. Every time we embrace life, it leads to new joy. It leads towards us acknowledging what God has done for us and what He is going to do for us in heaven, in His, in His blessing in our lives. And so every time God leads us to make a choice we got to look at it like it's finding that treasure in a field that every time God uncovers something in our lives and says, hey, I want you to grow here. Hey, I want you to let that go. Hey, I want you to engage in this ministry. Hey, I want you to serve like this. Every time God leads us in a direction, it is us finding that treasure in the field. And it's up to us to decide what we do with it. 
And if we embrace the joy that He has for us, if we embrace the life He has for us in joy, we will say, you know what? God's working hard on me. He's changing my heart right now. It's difficult, but I'm doing it. And every time I do that, I'm closer. I'm closer to the life that He wants for me. I'm closer to being the person He wants me to be. I'm closer to His kingdom. And that makes me happy. And that brings joy to my heart. Because the closer we get to God, the more we experience life. And it's not that He withholds it. It's just that's who He is. The closer we get to God, we can't help but experience life and joy and peace. We, we can't help it. It's like the closer you get to a light, the brighter it gets. The more you're going to experience of Him. And God Himself, Jesus Himself, is that treasure. And every time He calls and asks us to make a choice, it's not because He's against us. It's because He's for us. But we'll get that twisted up in our own minds and we'll let fear take over. And we'll find that treasure and we'll get excited about it. And then Satan starts in. It's like, oh, you can't live like that. You, you, can't, you need to hold on to this life. You can't make it without that. You can't live without this. And we start to get afraid and we stop moving forward. We stop selling all the items that we used to own so that we can possess what is truly valuable. And so I want, I want you to picture it like this. We hear the good news and accept it. Then as we grow in Christ, we separate ourselves from our own lives one thing at a time. I want you to look at your discipleship as the selling process of selling everything that you used to own. But you're doing it with joy because you know what's waiting. And so don't think about what you're giving up. Think about what you're gaining. Because when we gain in the kingdom of God, you know what? It's stuff He doesn't take away. See, Jesus said, Do not store up treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Everything of this world is temporary. Everything of God's kingdom is eternal. And so the more the eternal that we invest in and the more we apprehend in our own lives, the more kingdom we have now. And I want as much of the kingdom in my life right now as possible. 